turn in our Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, where the Samaritan woman asked Jesus, where is the proper place to worship? And Jesus corrects her on her ideas, but then looks forward also to our worship today. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city in Samaria which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then said the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, Thou wouldst have asked of him that he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But that the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband, and come thither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast said well, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. And that saidst thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship Ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. So far the reading of God's inspired, infallible word. Drawing from that word, we have the teaching of the catechism. In this third section of the catechism, which is dealing with gratitude, 
And that gratitude is shown by obedience to God's law, Lord's Day 35. What doth God require in the second commandment? That we in no wise represent God by images, nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. Question 97. Are images then not at all to be made? Answer, God neither can nor may be represented by any means. But as to creatures, though they be represented, yet God forbids to make or to have any resemblance of them, either in order to worship them or to serve God by them. Question 98. But may not images be tolerated in the churches as books to the laity? Answer, no. For we must not pretend to be wiser than God, who will have his people taught not with dumb images, but by the lively preaching of the word. May God bless the preaching of the word to that end, that we may know how to worship our God. Among the different representative groups of the Church of Jesus Christ, there is a difference of opinion on how the commandments are to be divided in, by ten. Roman Catholics and Lutherans, following the precedent set by Augustine, incorporate the second commandment into the first commandment. And then in order to still have ten commandments, they divide the tenth commandment. Reformed churches, in agreement with the Jews, maintain that the distinctive character of the second commandment is different from the first commandment. We have here a boundary of how we worship. The first commandment tells us who we worship. The second commandment tells us how we are to worship. Now perhaps you say, well, do we still need this today? I mean, yes, okay. Over against the Roman Catholic Church with their different images, with bowing down, worshiping the bread and the wine and the Lord's Supper, it's understandable. How do we worship? Does this still apply for us? And the answer is yes. Worship wars continue to rage within the church. So in many churches, they have two different kind of worship services. They have what they call the traditional worship service and the contemporary worship service. Leaving it up to God's people how they want to worship. In the old ways or in new ways that are continually being developed. We need to hear this commandment because at times there are some of our people too that look away from the old way of worship that we have to new contemporary kind of worship. They say it's more invigorating. What it is is a matter of will worship. The question comes to the, in those churches where they have two different kind of worship services, what strikes your fancy? Which way is new for you and maybe you can express yourself in different ways? Or instead of long monologue sermons, we can watch people dancing, have films, a lot more songs, praise choruses. Do you tire of God's worship as we've had it here in our churches? What we call a prescribed worship? Prescribed not by ourselves. We don't determine how to worship God. But God determines how he will be worshipped. 
doesn't he? This is not new. This different ways of seeking to worship God, that's not new. Think, boys and girls, way back to Cain. He says, I will bring to God the kind of sacrifice that I want to bring. The best fruits of my garden or of my field. God should be happy with that. Or as I mentioned already, after God had spoken his law to the people, and God was in heaven, uh, up on the mountain with Moses, writing down that law on those tablets of stone down there at the bottom of the mountain, the people said, we want to have someone, something to see when we worship. And they made a golden calf. Or another example of strange worship, Nadab and Abihu. Rather than following the prescribed way of worship, that is taking hot coals from the burnt offering altar in order to light the incense, they brought strange fire. They didn't want to bother to go to that altar of the burnt offering with a sacrifice on it. Or we think of King Saul. He's waiting for David and he wants to go to battle and he says, I will I will bring, make the sacrifice for God's people. Or still one more example from the Old Testament. David, when he transfers the ark, or tries to transfer the ark to Jerusalem on a cart driven by oxen, and Uzzah puts out his hand because as the oxen stumble, the ark is shaking there in that cart. And God was displeased and struck Uzzah dead. And David was afraid. We need to be warned about worship in which one seeks to serve God in a carnal, visible, and sensual manner. So the theme of my sermon is prescribed worship in God's law, namely the second commandment. You and I who are a kingdom of priests, how will we worship? God sets a boundary. You worship me as I prescribe for you. Then I will be pleased. So notice with me in the first place the character of worship. Notice, second of all, the reason for such worship. And then thirdly, the sanction of proper worship. That is, that which encourages us in our life. What is the character of our worship? And notice, first of all, what is not prohibited. Question 97 tells us that yes, Creatures may be represented. Moses made that serpent of brass for the Israelites to look to when the fiery serpents were killing many of them. Or think a moment of King Solomon's temple with the gold plastered on it represented with flowers, with pomegranates, with palm trees, with oxen, with lions, and even representations of angels. You see, Christianity is not at variance with true art, or with photography, or with painting, or with sculpture. There have been groups of Christians that say no images at all, they don't want their pictures taken, they don't want any glass windows, stained glass windows in their churches, make it just as plain as possible, even in our own churches. There was, there was a anger and position taken that we shouldn't have any kind of cross at all in the church. 
because they said that's making an image. And the Reformed Church says no. When we dealt with that in our history, no, that is a symbol. And of anyone that should have a right to the symbol of the cross, it's believers in Jesus Christ who rejoice that he went to the cross for our sins. The second commandment does not forbid any images. You may have images, sculptures, arts, but not to worship God. Second of all, the second commandment does not forbid what the first commandment has already prohibited. Now, there is a very close relationship between the first and the second commandment because when God's people try to worship God in a wrong manner, making images of the unseen God, they are tempted to go away from the worship of the true God through an image to the worship of that very image itself. God forbids worship that uses creaturely images in order to know and to worship the true God. Whether those be images be material things or whether those images are even images in our own mind. God wants his people to adore, to trust, to submit in their mind, to bow down and serve him in reverence. God wants them not only then to adore and to trust and submit to him and serve him, but bow down themselves in a proper way, humble themselves before the majesty of their God. So what? What is the proper form of worship? And the answer simply is, worship God in the way that he commands in his word. And that worship that God commands in his word excludes image worship. That is, worshiping the true God using images. Whether it be physical images. At the time when the catechism was written, of course, in the church, there would be crosses with a Jesus hanging on it. Now, while Jesus did have a physical body, first of all, we don't have a picture of what he looked like. Quite often, those images of Jesus in churches are almost like Dutch people. White skin, Jesus was a Jew. But more than that, a form of Jesus hanging on the cross does not portray the victorious Savior who, yes, died on the cross and conquered sin and Satan and death and rose again the third day. We do not worship Jesus Christ in the bread and the wine. They are just plain bread and wine. They point to a spiritual reality. But we don't worship the bread and the wine. Others, the church becomes all important. Talk to a man nearing 90 years old. And he said, I don't go to church anymore. I stay home instead. I don't hear anything. There's not a lively preaching of the word in, anymore. There's just dances, there's films, there's songs, little homilies. I said, well, man, what are you doing there then? If the worship is that bad, why are you a member still there? Why, do, why don't you go to a church where there is the lively preaching of the word? Ah, uh, he says, yeah, but that church... That's the church that I was baptized in. That's the church that I was married in. That's the church that I'm going to be buried in. The church building became an image of his worship, even though he wouldn't go there because there was not proper preaching. But forbidden is not only 
those physical things. But forbidden is also mental images that are not according to Scripture. Because those mental images quite often also limit God to a creature. So that God, in the image of the person, is a kindly old gentleman who gives you whatever you need and never reprimands you. Or in other worship where Jesus Christ is portrayed as a beggar. Begging that he wants to save you if only you are willing. If you will open your heart. That is not our God. And that's not our Christ. What is proper? Well, excluded still from proper worship is what we call self-willed religion. I'm going to do what pleases me. I'm going to worship God in a way that the culture that we live in determines how we worship. So that rather than having the lively preaching of the word, which this commandment ends with in this catechism, Lord's Day, little nuggets are given. Little nuggets that we can take with us. Kind of like the fast food service. Preacher, don't preach too long. Have a short little sermon. We want to be in. We want to be out just as if we were at McDonald's. Easy religion. Don't demand too much of me. Don't step on my toes. Just let me feel good about myself. What is necessary in proper worship of our God? It must be spiritual in character. Jesus says to the disciples there and to the woman at the well, God is spirit. They who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? Spiritual. Not just the outward forms of worship. We get ourselves dressed, we drive to church, we sit there in church, we fold our hands, we close our eyes, we listen for a little while, and then we go home again and everything continues as it was. But rather, God's people come hungry and thirsty for God's word. They prepare themselves for that service so that they are awake and alert and eager to hear what the Spirit has to say. Sincere, it comes from the heart. The songs just don't tumble off the lips. But from the heart, adoration and praise. From the heart, we want to hear what God has to hear, say to us. From the heart, we want to give our offerings. It must be spiritual worship. It must be also true worship. There's a lot of sincere folk that want to worship, but being sincere isn't enough, is it? It has to be in truth. We don't try to have the word of God tell us what we want to hear that makes us feel at home. We don't worship the means itself. The means are only a way for us to fall down and worship our God in truth. It's not to make us secure in what we're doing, to serve our ends, to be happy, to be rich. No, God wants us knowingly Willingly, from the heart, bending our knees, the result of our submission to him, full of adoration, vocal in our songs and in our prayers, issuing from souls that are lifting themselves up before our God. We read in Isaiah chapter 57, these words.
thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell on the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and a humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Heart worship. Beholding God as he reveals himself in his word. Worshiping God as he has revealed himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. What a contrast there is between worship. We go to Psalm 51. We read there in verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Over against just formal worship, going through the motions, God says in that same chapter of Isaiah 50, uh, of Psalm 51, for thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. No, not outward worship, but within. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou art not despised. We don't dispense with God's form of worship, the way we worship in the ear of the Spirit, but rather by the Spirit we are enabled to worship God in the way that he wants to be worshipped. We come together, proper worship is God's people coming together on Sundays so that we collectively sing our praises. We collectively hear the word of God. We unite our voices in song and praise. In an age in which it's very easy just to sit at home and listen perhaps to even the very good sermons on sermon audio. Sermon audio is a good thing for those who are sick and cannot come to church. Or sermon audio is a good way to worship God if one is too old or by pain or something else cannot come. But it may not replace the communal worship of God with his people. We need to teach our children that. In an age in which Churches that used to have always two worship services, morning and evening, many or even most of the churches in those denominations now have only one worship service. Why? Why? Because, well, okay, let's go to church if we have to, but we want to get home in time so that then we can either eat out or we can go golfing, we can go boating, we can do our own kind of thing. Even as Israel, when God came down to speak to them, every family from there standing by the door of their tent, facing the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, they worship God together as a community. And we need to hear that. Boys and girls, teenagers, hear that. It's not just your folks or your grandparents who said, yes, it's good that we have two worship services on Sunday. It's good for us. One of the reasons why we have two worship services on Sunday is so that the whole word of God may be, and the whole counsel of God may be heard as we go through the catechism in one of the sermons and a free text in the other sermon. We want to begin the day communally in worship, and we want to end the day communally in worship. So coming together then as God's people, 
What is the proper form of worship? What does it include? And here's a phrase that I want you to remember, the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship. What that word means, that phrase means, is we do not worship as we see fit, what is pleasing to our flesh, but we worship God in how he has prescribed that we worship him. And there's four elements in that. There is, first of all, the reading of Scripture. The word of God opened up, read, and then explained and carefully applied. How important is that? Most of our worship service is in that hearing of the word of God. And in hearing the word of God, then we come to him in prayer. Because the proper worship of God, when we hear him and we hear of who he is, what he has done, we, our hearts are filled with adoration and we come in our prayers with that adoration of God. And we come with a confession that we're not worthy of it of ourselves, that we are sinners who need to be saved and we come with thanks in our prayers. Thanks for all the blessings, physical and spiritual, that he's given to us. And we come also with supplication. We recognize our need for him. And we therefore intercede for others. And we pray for our own needs also. What is proper worship? It is scripture and the preaching of it. It is prayers that are acceptable to God. Thirdly, it is adoration with singing. God has given us lips and tongues to speak of his wonder and his greatness and his glory. He has given us songs, hasn't he? A whole book in the Bible of songs that God himself gives us to sing in the singing of the Psalms. And that is why in our churches, in our worship services, we don't have special music. You say, what's wrong with that? Is someone else going to sing God's praises for us and we silently listen? Or in our worship services, are we each commanded? When we hear his voice, we break forth from our hearts with our own lips and we sing his praises together. We don't have choirs in our worship services to sing the praises of God. God's people want to sing those songs together. And fourthly, the scripture and the preaching of the scripture, heartfelt prayer, songs from our lips, and from our tongues, and fourthly, the giving of our gifts. The giving of our gifts because we love the Lord, we love his kingdom, and we want that kingdom to prosper. Whether it's in our own building as a, and as a church, or whether it be with saints far across the world, even as this morning, poor saints in the Philippines, who need God's help through us for their daily needs. And that's not a new thing. Paul writes there to the churches of Galatia and the Corinthians, don't fall behind in your collection for the poor. Those churches, they wanted to help the poor saints that were over there in Jerusalem. He says, that was your desire. Now don't fall behind it, but rather on the first day of the week, when you come together, as you purpose in your heart, cheerfully give those gifts for God's kingdom. Some churches don't have an offering in the middle of their worship service. They'll have baskets on the way out that you can drop your money in. I'm thankful we don't do that. I'm thankful that as part of our worship service, this fourth characteristic of proper worship is in thankfulness for what God has done for us, a love for his kingdom, 
Our worship is cheerfully giving our gifts for the cause of the kingdom. Formal worship. Formal worship in public. So we come together as God's saints, together to hear his word, to sing his praises, to give our gifts, to pray for one another. We do it together. What a privilege. Congregational worship, beloved, is obligation. God commands it of his people. But it's also, hopefully, as Isaiah says, a delight. Isaiah 58. A delight for God's people. Do you look forward to Sundays? Boys and girls, do you look forward to Sundays? Or Dad and Mom say, I have to come. Do you prepare for it? Are you enthusiastic about it? We get to meet again with our God. He speaks to us and we're able to respond. Beautiful dialogue. A dialogue between God and his bride, the church, his people. Doing it with our children. How thankful I am that in our churches we don't have a children's church service that is the children all sent away so they can color their pictures hear a little story but you and i are able to sit down in worship with our children with our grandchildren with our little ones together to hear the word of god but our worship is not only publicly here together as a congregation we gather but there's also that family worship how important is that in your lives, in your homes? Do you gather around the table or in the evening to hear God's word, explain God's word, perhaps to sing some praises together as a family and come in prayer? The father as the head of the home leading his wife and his children in that worship. There is public worship, there's family worship, and beloved, there is thirdly, private worship, where we in our own little closets, not to be seen by others, not to even be heard by others, but one-on-one -on -one with our God, adoring him, praising him, reading his word, meditating upon that word, and praying to him, saying, thou art my God, O God of grace. And earnestly I seek thy face. My heart cries out to thee. That's the character of worship. Notice with me, second of all then, the reason of our worship. Why do we worship this way? The catechism says, God neither can nor may be represented by any means. Deuteronomy 4, verse 15. Take ye therefore good heed to yourselves. For ye saw no manner or form on the day Jehovah spoke unto you in Horeb, out of the midst of fire. You see, God's people there, Israel, they said, well, Moses is up on their mountain. We can't see God. And Moses isn't even here. Give us something, something to draw our attention so that we may worship God. God cannot be seen with the naked eye because he is spirit. We may not represent God for anything that we would use would be from our own collective experience as creatures. Even Moses up there on the mountain. God says, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. And I'm going to hide you behind my hands because you cannot see my face. But you will see my back parts as I pass by. The glory of our God is so great. So, the reason for the regulative principle of worship, God is spirit. 
Not God is a spirit like the angels. The angels also are spirits, but they are creatures, aren't they? God is distinctive from that whole material and physical world that he made. There's a distinction, isn't there? An important distinction between the creator and the creature. God is spirit. What that implies, beloved, is that God has a personality. He is self-existent. He is a self-conscious being who thinks, who feels, who wills. And it's not the case that we have to find God, but God finds us and God reveals himself to us. He reveals in his word that he is the triune God. He reveals to us his own life, doesn't he? What is the life of God like? It's a family life where God the Father loves his Son in the Spirit. And the Son loves the Father in the Spirit. Fellowship and friendship. Working together. God shares that life with us as people. And as we read from Isaiah, although God is high, highly exalted above the whole earth, yet he reveals himself and comes down into this world and particularly to his people. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus saith the Lord, the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. What we're talking about here is God's transcendence. There's no one like our God, but also God's imminence. Never, never are we all by ourselves. No matter what trial or difficulty or valley we walk through, a valley of darkness, thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Psalm 99, verse 5, exalt ye Jehovah our God and worship at his footstool. So why do we have this prescribed worship? Because who God is he is spirit. He is altogether lovely. And it demands then the best kind of worship possible. It demands the worship that he demands. Second reason for our worship is found in the nature of man, isn't it? For there can be no worship except there is some relation between God and man. And that worship between God and man is an intimate fellowship. That's how God created us. Genesis 1 verse 26. We were made in God's image. That means that you and I could know God. It means that you and I from our hearts could love God and serve him. That is really the final purpose of creation, isn't it? Not merely our life here on earth, but it is in our life on earth that we bow before our God, we love him and serve him with our lives. That's the way God created us. And yes, from that lovely creation, man fell, didn't he? The canons of Dort speak of man's understanding, his heart, his will, his affections. The whole man was holy and all those things were turned to the opposite, weren't they? Light became darkness. Knowledge became ignorance. Holiness was turned into ugliness, ungodliness. In the fall, we forfeited those excellent gifts. Revolting against God, Adam and Eve, by the instigation of the devil and his own free will became blind in his mind horrible darkness vanity perverseness of nature wickedness rebelliousness 
obdurate in heart and will, in all of our affections impure. Yes, that's the awful story of the fall and of our sinful nature. Sin brings alienation, depravity, and spiritual death. But sin did not annihilate man's need for God. And that's why Romans 1, God reveals himself to all creatures. He is the God. Everyone can see his power and his glory. But apart from Christ Jesus, they will not bow down before him. Oh, don't think for a moment, beloved, that our sin in Adam and Eve caught God unawares. God planned the way of sin in order to show his wonderful grace, didn't he? In his beloved son, Jesus Christ. For it is in Jesus Christ that God's image is renewed in us, in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. God not only revealed himself, but restored you and me as his people. Romans 8, verse 29, for whom he foreknew. That word foreknew does not mean in the Armenian sense, God knew beforehand what we're going to do. But that word foreknow means as Adam knew his wife, God loved us. For whom he loved Beforehand, he also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his son, that Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. Through Christ, we have received our adoption as God's sons and daughters, so that our hearts now cry out in our worship and in our lives, Abba, Father. By that spirit, we are renewed in our spirits and the knowledge of God. And you and I partake of that divine nature. We are those who now love his righteousness. We desire to live in holiness for him. Yes, it is that renewed image of God that is fostered and strengthened by proper form of worship. That's the means that we grow in Christ Jesus. We grow as children of God, sons and daughters, reflecting more and more his light and his glory. Looking forward. Looking forward to the day of our own perfect restoration unto the praise of his glory. Now already born again from above, but now yet still with sin. Receiving the sunshine and the rain of God's word and sacraments, our life comes to conversion, doesn't it? And we bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Receiving the sunshine of God's word, you and I are taught to turn away from our sins, to turn to God, to turn to his commandments, and to sing in the Psalter that song, Oh, how love I thy word. Isaiah 5, verse 1, we are commanded, Therefore, be ye imitators of God. Or Matthew 5, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is that your desire that you grow in God's grace under the preaching of the word, the lively preaching of the word? That you're involved in that worship, then singing your praises, giving of your gifts, and calling upon him in prayer? Proper worship. Are we sinners able to bring that proper worship? And the answer is yes. It is possible for God's people to bring that kind of worship because God, by his spirit, enables us. He gives us hearts that want to please God, 
that want to call upon God, that want to hear God, hearts that want to sing his praises. Proper worship is commanded by our God. It's our obligation, but it's also our delight. How wonderful is our communal worship, desired by God's people, delighting in coming with fellow saints to hear God's word, to sing his praises, to give our offerings, and to pray. Notice with me thirdly then the sanction of that worship. The catechism says sanction. What that means is that which induces, that which encourages the observance of this law. And what is it that sanctions, that encourages, that induces that observation of God's law of worshiping properly? We find it in the commandments. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. God is God. That means we have to be obedient to him. He's not like an indulgent father, Eli. Poor righteous Eli, he knew that his sins were doing sin, but he did not correct them as he should have. But he indulged them with the terrible things that they were doing of the worship of God at the tabernacle. God is a jealous God. What does that mean? Jealousy often in us, when we use it, means we're envious of others. We're filled with envy. And that's always bad, isn't it? But when we speak of the jealousy of God, we must do so in the relationship of a man with a wife. As husbands, would you tolerate your wife flirting with other men or other men flirting with her and taking liberties with her? And the answer is, of course not. If you really love that person, you want that person to be devoted back to you just as you are with them. Beloved, that is our God. Not serving other gods, first commandment. Not making false images, creaturely images to worship God through. Not self-willed worship. God wants us as his people to worship him as he commands us. How wonderful that he tells us how to. He doesn't leave us to ourselves. What do I think is nice? What do I think would please God? What, what pleases my sinful nature? No. Jealousy of God shows itself. It shows itself in loving kindness to those who love him, but it also shows itself in a visitation of iniquity on those of hatred on those who despise or hate him. Beloved, the second commandment encourage us to enforces us, encourages us to obedience. And it does that by way of reward, but also by the threat of punishment. What a punishment of God to those Israelites. He was almost going to say, I'm going to start all over again. I'm going to destroy them all. God was angry at that worship at Sinai. God was angry there at Uzzah, who dared to reach out with his hand and touch the Ark of the Covenant, which was supposed to be carried only on poles between the Levites. And what is that punishment? to the third and the fourth generation of them that hate me. Third and fourth generation, as we read in Ezekiel 18, the son shall not 
bear the iniquity of the father. That's not the case. But rather, even as a good tree brings forth good fruit, a bad tree brings forth evil fruit. How is that possible? Parents, if you are not regular in your worship service on Sunday morning and Sunday evening, what do you think your children are going to do? If you take off for holidays, spend the day in other ways, children are watching. If you are oncers to worship service on Sunday, your children will be nuncers. That means they won't go at all. Except maybe on the holidays. It's been proven. There is this threat then. The threat of God. A jealous God for his people. He will punish to the third and the fourth generations those who hate him. But there's also the glorious promise that sanctions or that encourages, that induces us to proper worship, isn't there? Because over against his anger that is to the third and the fourth generation, his love and his blessing is to thousands of generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. We can count those generations Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, parents and grandparents down to grandchildren and their children. Oh, God's mercy encompasses thousands of generations, while the iniquity of the workers is to their third and the fourth generation. What a display of God's love, isn't it? What a display of God's love that as a denomination we're going to be selling, celebrating 100 years as a denomination. God is faithful, that's why. Not because we're so good. God is faithful. And he shows that faithfulness when we and our children and our grandchildren after us remain true to him. Worship him as he commands us to. Our mouths and lips singing his praises. Our ears hearing his word. Our hands giving of our offerings. And coming in our prayers with praise, but also with absolute need. Dependence as his children. Incorporating us and our children after us in his church to know and love him and serve him. Yes, those are the kingdom boundaries that God sets for proper worship of the God, the worship that he demands of us. Spiritual worship that is arising from our hearts, sincere, not merely outward. Our worship has to be true worship. And that's where I would say that's where church affiliation is important. Never, never would we say we're the only true church or our denomination is the only true church. God's church is found in many different nations and peoples and cultures and denominations. But as you look around where you live, how do you pick what church you're going to go to as a married couple when you want to worship? Is it what pleases me, what is attractive, which kind of fun? Or is it what God demands? True worship. Where is his word most purely proclaimed? Not purely, most purely. Every church has sins. Every preacher has faults. But where is that word most clearly delineated, confessed, written up in their confessions to hold us together to worship the one true God? Amen. Father in heaven, we thank thee 
for not leaving us to ourselves in determining how we want to worship thee. We thank thee that thou hast revealed thyself to us and thou hast also revealed to us how we are to worship. Then bless our worship, Father. May it be in spirit and in truth. May we hunger and thirst for thy word. May we be blessed by the warmth and the sunshine and the rain of thy word as we walk as pilgrims in this world. For thou, O Lord, thou alone art worthy of our worship. Amen.